Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we are going to have a fun episode with my friend Ryan Carter of DC Outfitters, the man with the strong beard game. Ryan, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you, Jay? Uh, I'm doing well. You know, I missed you up at the Western Hunting Expo, uh, but every time I would go by, you'd seem to have a mob of 100 people around you. <laughs> I I thought I hid pretty well with the beard. I, I was trying to go incognito, but it, it didn't work so well. Yeah, I didn't know <laughs> if you were uh, trying out for the Duck Commander or if you were still with DC Outfitters. I, I was hoping. They make a lot of money, but I, I can't, I'm just not getting that phone call. Not, not, the phone isn't ringing yet, huh? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Fingers are crossed, though. Ryan, yeah, good. Ryan, the last time we had you on the podcast, uh, we discussed uh, Utah elk. We've done some strategy stuff. We've done some preseason, before, you know, before the season strategy stuff. Uh, you've helped us kind of with uh, applications and what have you. Today, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about everything. Um, before we really dive into uh, the state of Utah and, and elk and what have you, uh, give the listeners a little bit of an update on where we sit as far as uh, precipitation, snowfall, and your outlook for the upcoming year compared to uh, years past where we sit. Wow. Okay. Um, so this year, winter has hit us hard. Utah's got a ton of snow statewide, um, even in southern Utah, which typically we just kind of skate by. Um, southern Utah sitting, I, last time I saw it was like at 140% uh, snowpack. Um, that. So it's kind of exciting just knowing, like, one, we got that much water coming our way. Um, two, that uh, last year was a drought year. So the positive note on the drought year, um, even though, so, you know, last year we discussed a lot of the age class, what was going on with a lot of the bulls I'm seeing. Um, a lot of that turned out really sour. I, I had 380 bulls that dropped down to 355. Uh, like it was, it was crazy to me the the how bad the drought affected a lot of my bulls. I had a few come through that were the same size, nothing that outgrew what it was the year before, nothing. Um, so I had a lot of three seventies to three sixty type bulls, um, and and some of those bulls were old, you know, eight or nine years old. So I expected more last year, but the drought hurt us. But the positive note of all that is that most of those bulls lived. I, I didn't have a lot of uh, carnage down in southern Utah this year. Um, so that just adds two more years to the bulls from 2017. Um, so I'm hoping with this wet year we just have some insane antler growth. Now, I, I still say, you know, precipitation's exciting. I, I've been watching some of these outfitters and and, and some of these other Instagram, I, I saw Epic Outdoors and Go Hunt posting about the precipitation tables, how exciting it is with water. I, I still look at age class as our top priority. Um, so even though water helps, and some of those units, genetics plus water, will really bump up bulls. You know, you'll get a six-year-old bull that will break 360. 
However, I, I still say you still need those eight and nine-year-old bulls to, for, the, for the age to really kick in, for the antler growth to really bump your trophy class if you're trophy hunting. So it's exciting. It's going to be a super good year. Um, I still think a lot of guys have a lot of grinding to do uh, before a lot of big, big bulls die this year. But it should be fun regardless. Let me play the devil's advocate just for a second, not on the age um, variable that you were bringing up, but on the fact of precipitation and moisture and snowfall. Is it possible that you could have 140% snowpack and have, you know, just really, really good snows in the winter and it stay cold enough through the spring that the elk potentially don't get that jump that we all hope they get. Is that a possibility? Do you see that even potentially playing out, or, or does that not bother you at all? No, I've, I've seen it. No, that's, that's a valid point. Um, I, I've had years that, that it's really strange. It stays super cold. It, my experience as a shed hunter uh, here in Utah uh, it, it, it varies region to region, but here in Utah, a lot of the sheds happen when the green grass starts to show, right? Like, I, I really don't see that there's some bulls that fall off pretty regular right about the same time. However, most of them kind of get this, I don't know, like this jump as soon as they start getting some green grass on the south slopes. That's when horns start to fall. I've had winters where we've had heavy snowpack the antlers didn't fall off. It, rather than the 1st of March, they fell off the 20th, the 30th of March. And it did hurt them. They, they didn't get that kickstart three weeks. Now, a mature bull elk averages about an inch of growth a day, depending on age and, and, and region. If we're missing three weeks, that's a, that's a kick to the nuts. So I, you have a very valid point. That could be the case. Um, I, I don't see it. I think it's going to warm up. I, I mean, it's 42 right now, and we're still February. I think we're going to get a, a good year. I really do. But, you know, last year I was really wrong. I was excited about last year, and, and we got hurt bad. So you never know, right? Yeah, so last year um, you had antler growth, you said, down from bulls that were 380 to, you know, 350-type bulls. So as well as that, you had bulls that did not get harvested. Uh, do you believe the overall harvest was down, um, not only, you know, with age class of bulls that you're targeting, but as, as across the board? I mean, the hunt was probably tougher. Uh, but in general, those older age class bulls, they're basically just one year older, right? Um, yeah, you know, you know, I I don't know what the harvest rates were to be honest. I'm I'm stuck on one unit through most of September. I miss a lot of what's going on. I play catch up. I jump on social media, you know, September 28th when I get in, back in service and start trying to figure out who killed what and what bulls died and see what I got tagged in. I, I lose a lot. So just based off what I saw on my units. You know, I had three of my clients turn back in their tags so they could try again for this year. Um, I think a couple of them will pull it for sure. Um, we'll have them back. But those tags, so Utah has a, a system so that if, if you, uh, if you, something happens, if, 
you know, family problem, whatever. Even if you're not even liking the elk you're seeing, up to two days before the hunt, you can return the tag that you were drawn. Um, you lose the money, but you can keep your points. Or you can get your money back and lose all your points, which I don't think anyone would do. But you can return those tags and try again for the lottery next year, see if you get a better year. It's kind of a cool system, especially since a lot of these guys wait 20-plus years to draw these tags. Um, but, the, you know, the, the end result of all that was that a couple days before the hunts, all these people were getting calls. Hey, you were the backup guy on, on the lottery system for if anyone turned their tag in, they did, do you want the tag? And a week before the hunt, I was getting multiple calls from people looking for a guide because they drew a tag. Um, if they had lots of points, I told them not to take them. If they, if they only had six or seven, I said, heck yeah, take the tag, jump in, kill a nice bull, and then jump back in the pool five years from now. Um, but overall, harvest was down. I, as far as age class, I, I still saw a lot of younger bulls dying. Um, I just didn't see a lot of big, big bulls dying, and that was almost statewide. I mean, there were some big bulls. Uh, it seemed like Mossback took a few off the San Juan. You know, Wade Lemon killed one on the beaver that was just huge big. Um, uh, you know, there was a few bulls here and there, but statewide was, was really down for last year. Ryan, you monitor uh, these elk with trail cams, and you talk about age class. I hear you mention 8, 9. Um, is there a magic number or a number that you would like to see your bulls reach and then you feel like in that zone that, you know, they're going to be kind of at their maximum potential? And then a, another question to that is, do they get to a certain age and then you start seeing them decline? I'm curious on that. Um, I, I've never seen the decline. I, I don't I don't know if that really exists with elk. I, I think you might have a year where their teeth have ground down far enough on a desert bull that they start to fall off. Um, there, there is one bull on my unit that I kind of wonder about, the... Tines up boys cam him a lot. I think they call him Freak Nasty or, oh, God, it's the, the Freak or something. He's a big, heavy old bull that no one can seem to kill. Um, I don't hunt in that area. I don't I, I don't cam that bull. But it, there's a lot of speculation on how old that bull is. And if he is, he has declined the last two years. Um, I don't see it, though. I, I typically see bulls kind of around eight, nine years old is when they really kind of put on their maximum look, right? They'll hit this kind of peak. Um, it doesn't mean they'll decline. I, I think, you know, as long as they stay healthy, I think they, they'll progress or stay the same. Uh, two years ago, my bow hunter killed a bull we watched called MJ. Um, MJ didn't, I mean, he stayed at the 390 level, from 15 to 17 at like two or three years and then we killed him that fall and he went four well unbroke he's 421 I think he was missing nine inches when we killed him um, but he was 11 years old like so 9 10 11 he was you know or 9 10 he was 390 type bull which seems just 
maxed out. But then at 11 years old, he peaked one more year and put on 30 more inches. So wow. I, it's hard to say. I, I don't really know. I just don't. I, I'd be guessing. But I, as far as my bulls, I, I don't see them really break book, which is 375 until they're seven, eight years old. Okay. Um, there's a lot to go into, a lot of stuff that was going to my mind when you were talking about that. Um, talk about, um, you mentioned shed season. Uh, you mentioned how much you like to find sheds. You talk about, you know, camming bulls and, and trying to target bulls and the units that you like. Um, we're, we're kind of moving into that period of time where, you know, the sheds are going to be dropping soon. Um, how how much do you try and target specific bulls that you're actually, you know, the, your big bulls, how much do you really try and target and find their sheds, um, or do you try and kind of stay out of where they're at, or how, how does that work? Um, I, I don't bother my bulls. Uh, that, that area, whether it's my fault or a couple other Instagram type people, I, I don't know, but that is probably one of the hardest hit areas in Utah. <laughs> it's, it gets hammered, and and so I, I don't like going and hiking for four or five days to come out with one or two horns. I'd I'd rather hit some of these units with the lower age class, and and see if I can't have some more fun. You know, because in the end, that's fun for me. Um, but I I do get tagged in a lot of the bulls that I hunt. You know, people get on and say, hey, we found chunky monkey's right side and you know come check it out i'll go look at it um but i i don't spend a lot of time down there just because of the the uh, competition gotcha um you talked about when bulls typically are shedding uh in utah in the units that you you shed hunt whether it be you know you mentioned kind of staying out of your core units um when do you normally see antlers really hitting the ground uh, in numbers? About the third week of March. Um, the, the first week of March, I typically have um, a few bulls dropping, and it's usually your 340 to 365 type bulls hit first in that first week. And then it seems like the second week, um, those same bulls are falling plus your older age class, you know, and, the big bulls you're trying to target find their shed hunts or find their sheds. That's kind of the week that they fall is that second week. Um, and then third week, you're, I mean, they're all kind of hitting the dirt pretty fast. Um, your younger age class, I've seen spike and five-point bulls carry until mid-May before. Um, it, it's hard to say what makes them kick off other than the growth underneath. But, you know, mid-March, that's about your hot spot. That's, that's when you try to get out a little bit more um if the elk are in kind of a safe zone obviously especially on a snowpack year like this i worry people get in a little bit kick them around too much because of the competition of trying to grab those horns um puts a little stress on the animals um a lot of the units in southern utah the the belt line the beaver the boulder the dutton the san juan there's a lot of uncharted terrain that the bulls are safe in, and, and, and most guys can't access them until April, which is nice. Bookless, too. Um, but still, there's a lot a lot of country um, that, that gets hammered really hard, and the elk get pushed. 
It's hard to say, but I I think that third week of March is probably your hottest week. Okay, so third week in March. When do you target and really start getting your strings of cameras out, um, or do do you leave them all year? Talk a little bit about your strategy as far as trying to get all your cameras and get all your photos. Um, So I get... my important pictures, the one that really kind of show how the bulls are going to look for the year. Like, in all reality, you don't know how they're going to look till about July 1st. Um, but maybe mid-June is when I really start noticing character and I can identify those bulls. So I like to have my fleet rolling by mid-June. That being said, um, I, I have a lot of cameras out. I, I'm not even sure I, I know. I was going over the list the other day how many I have out at the time. I just know my routes. And so I'll have a route where I start at one trailhead and I come out on another trailhead and I'll hike, I don't know, between 13, 16 miles that day and I'll set maybe 11 cameras. And then the next day and then the next day. I usually have to start in May in order to get all my cameras out by June 15th. And and from that point, you know, that's when all the, we we start rechecking cameras to find out what bulls are where, so that we know kind of where to target. Because then we'll shift. So, you know, I I target bulls. So by end of July, I'm kind of deciding. Okay, here's my hit list of bulls, and say there's ten of them. These are the ten bulls that look the best for this year. So then I'll regroup cameras depending on which bulls we decide to target, because I only take three or four clients a year. Um, And so I'll move more cameras into those areas to kind of set up a route on that bull, figure out kind of where he's bedding, where he's watering, where he's frequenting frequenting the most, and most important is find out where he's daylighting. And so a lot of times come August, I've shifted a bunch of my cameras, and they'll be sitting on, I mean, they're set for one bull or maybe two, if I have two in the area. So that's kind of my strategy. And then come, you know, September ends in October. This year, I just didn't have it in me to pull any of them. I, I left them all. Hopefully they're all still out and some of them clicked through the winter, but <laughs> I, I didn't have the gusto to get them all last year. So you've got some work to do is what you're saying. Yeah, well, and and there's good and bad to that. The bad is that, you know, you risk people mess tampering with them, uh, stealing them. Uh, But the good is they're out, they're in lockboxes, they're cabled. All I have to do is take in new cards and batteries and clean up the lenses a little bit. For this year, I'm not packing as much weight other than bait and batteries. Um, I'm not having to reset each camera. So there's a good and bad to that. But I'm a little nervous about the, the, the former, about how many, how many have been stolen or tampered with. I'm a little worried. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you use to, to attract them to try and get their photos? Have you found any one particular thing that works better than others? Uh, you know, that for the most part, because because of how I hunt my bulls and my most important asset is my summer cameras while the velvet's growing just salt any salt i I don't care if it's trophy rock 
Critterlick, Morton, so, you know, softener, like uh, water softener salt, salt works. That's probably my biggest thing through the summertime. I use and try everything. Uh, certain areas are more, some things work better than others. You know, like if I have tons of cattle, trophy rocks are awesome because, I mean, the cattle can't lick them gone. They eventually get sick of them and walk off. Whereas if I lay down some critter lick, that like they'll dig a hole four feet deep before it's gone, and then in a week I have no salt because the cattle got to it all. And so some things are better than others, and I try to keep in mind where my where my cattle are as to what kind of bait I'm putting down. But for those months of June through August, I really focus on salt. September I shift, but it I I mean there's things that work and things that don't but in all reality once the velvet strips nothing really works that that's when you focus on water that's when you focus on uh bedding areas i I do better cam work in areas with no bait in september than i do with bait if that makes sense yeah what cameras right now um are you running and having the most success with uh what models well, I, I run all stealth cams um, just because I've set up a deal with them because I run so many cameras. Um, and the camera I order the most, I mean, they have some cool cameras, some cameras that are, like, getting some color photos at nighttime. And, I mean, they have some really cool cameras. Even their lower end seem to do really well at pictures. Um, I run probably 80 of their DS4K cameras. They, it runs video and pictures at the same time in 4K quality. They're, they're unreal. They're expensive. But the results, I mean, it's just picture clear everything. I can watch the bull turning his head side to side and get really get a good idea. I, I score bulls uh, based on physical attributes. You know, I... I, I'll sit and break down, okay, he's got an 8-inch ear. And I'll look at the ear and I'll look at the bridge of the nose, which is about 13 inches, and I can sit and kind of go over that to help me gauge. Because a lot of times body size messes you up. Like you, you can have a big old body bull and, and have these horns that don't look great and kind of throw you off. Having the 4K quality allows me to judge them just a little bit better because of their physical attributes, whereas cameras especially cheaper cameras with, like, bad night glare can really throw off your game a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, over there in Colorado on the Optix Ranch, we run uh, some 4K cameras, and we run the G34 Pro. One thing we've been noticing on the G34 Pro is that the nighttime photos, the, the I guess it would be the flash or the infrared flash is so bright that it kind of washes out the photo. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas the the 4K, we've just we've we've had so much fun with some of the 4K video stuff. It's amazing. Isn't it crazy? It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy <laughs> and, good. And it's unbelievable. As far as the glare on that. On, on your G series, the older, the lower G series, the 30s, the 32s, 34s, you get that really bad. So I've been telling people to upgrade to the 40s and try to go no glow, or, or even the low glow, the F series were okay, but the no glows are even better. Um, 
as far because the the 4K does a decent job at night, but if if you have a night spot that's really frequent, I put in those no glow cameras, and and there's not so much as a bright uh, infrared, if that makes sense. And and those are the cameras I'm getting weird like color photos at nighttime. Like it's it's pretty strange. It's it's neat to see, but you're not getting the drown out effect. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, um, it seems like the closer, you know, if you can get the camera set far enough away, you don't get that shine quite as bad. If, if you know, you're set pretty, you want to set pretty close because you're, I always feel like in the dark, if you're too far away, you're not going to get it. But um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a fine line. But we've, uh, Hunter Meekham and I have uh, had fun running those uh, stealth cams as well um, and been, Learning, I've never really run cameras um, until my experience there at the Odd Sticks, and so we've we've been learning quickly on things that work better and what have you. Um, talk a little bit about um, your entry and exits, meaning, uh, you know, if you've got salt or what have you, or if you're on water, um, you know, from the path of entry to the path of exit. How will you set those cameras up, whether it be parallel or perpendicular or, or what to the path and what works best for you to, for getting those best photos? And what angle do you want? You know, what's your prime angle? Okay. Um, entry and exit as far as my entry and exit or the elk or both? The elk. Like getting their photo, okay. like how do you set the camera in relation to where you think they're coming from and leaving from your little area, whether it be salt or water, you know, are you setting them where they're head on, where they're walking in, walking out, or are you setting them to the side at a quarter? How, how do you do it? Well, it's it's always tough, and every spot's different, right? So I I always want a profile view. The, the head-on stuff kills me because – air inches aren't as important as actual inches on their head. And so if I can get the profile view rather than their width, I, I would way rather have that. But the most important thing to me is getting rid of sun glare. And it really limits your your trees and your placement um, because you almost have to have your camera facing due north or due south in order to avoid those really bad glares in morning and evening when the elk are moving, right? And right. so I take what I can get, but I try to make the best judgment possible when I walk in there because I'll, I'll look around, I'll figure out, you know, it looks like they're coming in from this way. I can profile it, but I have a hard south-north-northwest angle, you, you know, and and then it depends on the steepness or if you're on a bench, the the height or placement of the camera um, you know, typically you want to keep it at that 40-inch mark, uh, you, not too much higher, too much lower. But if you're on a steep hill, I'll drop it down on the tree a little bit so that it's more head-on with them um, or else, or vice versa. If it's going the other way and I have to angle my camera, a lot of times, so I have to lock all my cameras. I'm on public land. I'm in areas that have multiple cameras. It, you know, if I'm putting on a wallow, sometimes I'll have close to 20 cameras in there. I do have a lot of competition. And so most of my cameras are locked in. And so when I'm setting my camera before I lag bolt them to the tree, um, I'll go through and, and put like a, a stick to angle that 
security box enough to where it's pointing to where it's going to hit those elk in the nose. Because I don't want to cut off the antlers, and I don't, I don't necessarily want to, and you know, cut off anything else. But I, I have to make the jet best judgment possible. Some spots are really tight, and some of them are huge, big, big meadows. You know, it, it's it's always hard, but it's trial and error for me every time. And I've been doing cameras since the 35 millimeter flash cameras way back when. <laughs> I still yeah. have to sit and figure it out. When you come to a spot and you're, let's say you come and you're checking your camera and let's say you notice another camera there and just wondering what goes through your mind and just standard protocol as to how, how you handle it. Let's say you see another camera there and it's like, you know, all cockeyed to the side, all man, you know, like all jacked up. Um, if you don't know whose camera it is, I mean, do you go over and try and at least straighten the camera or is your, um, you know, is the way you try and handle it just, you know, leave whatever you see alone um, and or, you know, if you know, if you know it's somebody's camera, uh, you know, do you, do you specifically like go call them on the phone and say, hey, I was up at so-and-so, just want to let you know someone's turned your camera completely around on the tree or someone's put tape over it or, I mean, how do you handle that? Because, I mean, I know as long as you've done it, you've seen all of the scenarios. What are your general, you know, what are you thinking about that? Um, my experience is that the Good Samaritan always gets punished. Um, I, I really, if, more often than not, I know whose camera it is. Um, if it's tape, I will call them. If I pulled it off and let them know, you know, I'll, I'll call Wade Lemon's guy. I'll say, hey, dude, you had tape on your camera. He did that for me last year. Um, knowing that, I, I had some hidden cameras. I found out who was doing it. All the same, like, it, Typically, I won't touch them. I, I'll, I'll try to get a hold of who it is and let them know because I, I've, I've lost friendships over walking over and straightening a camera and then that person thinking I was the one that did it. And it's, Got you. I, I mean, it, it, it's, such a, it's such a bad deal that it, it's even an issue. Um, when I walk into a meadow and I see a camera there, um, I, I think it's etiquette that you, you don't hang your camera on the same tree as that person you know, my area, it's not like there's one cedar over a guzzler. I'm in pine trees or aspens or you can pick another tree. Um, typically, like, I, I really go out of my way to kind of wave, let them know I'm there. Um, a lot of times that throws guys off. Oh, crap, BC's in here. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I don't want people ever thinking I'm messing with their stuff. They see the date I'm in there. They see I set my camera. I left. Um in fact, the the one relationship that I just referred to that was kind of wrecked over me fixing one of their cameras has been fixed just by me every time I see one of their cameras going through waving, making sure they know I'm in there, and it's, you know, they're like, yeah, Ryan's pretty good. Um, yeah. It, trail cameras are a weird deal, especially on public land. You know, there's uh, there's bad people and good people, and it, it and you just you hope for the latter every time, but sometimes that's not the case, and it's not always other sportsmen. Um, some of the guys yeah. that had issues last year uh, were cattlemen, and I I don't know why they would care, 
but obviously they cared because it was it was a cattleman who smashed and took about a half dozen cameras from me last year and i caught him on camera doing it and so i you know it's not always sportsmen that are the culprit sometimes yeah i've had i got a lot of hippies where i'm at (laughs) i've I've had guys walking through picking mushrooms smash my cameras before so (laughs) it's it's kind of a weird deal um the last couple years there has been a lot of uh it's it hasn't been as bad as it has in year, years past. It seems like people have been pretty good lately. Let's um let's shift gears here for a second um and go back to the Utah uh, big game hunting regulations, the draw, uh, everything is due coming up here on March seventh, and. Um, one thing I think it's important to point out is Utah obviously has uh, preference points, and you know a lot of these prime units take a lot of preference points in order to draw. But um, as well as that, uh, they also give random tags to non-residents. Uh, wanted to just kind of talk to you about: uh, Do you hear from people every year that just draw randomly? Um, I do, but not a lot. Um, you know, I, as the years have gone by, I've, I've scaled back the units I cover. I really only cover one anymore. Uh, there's not a lot of tags, uh, non-resident wise, I think two archery, uh, five to seven rifle, uh, per, per each, uh, early and late season, and then two, uh, muzzleloader. Um, I, the, the random guys don't hit me up very often typically it's the high point guys that have waited 22 24 years to pull a tag um but but again i'm i'm not in those units that uh give out lots and lots of non-resident tags so typically a lot of the guys i talk to i've been talking to for five six years they've been planning and prepping for when they eventually pull that lottery permit Let's talk about, you mentioned, um, you know, you're kind of down to one or a couple units. Talk about the unit that you like, uh, that you spend most of your time in. Um, the last few years, I, I, I specifically guide the Boulder Plateau. Um, I, I've just been trapped there because the age class has been a lot better, and, and I love it. it it's, it's actually one of the crappier units to draw a tag if you don't, if you don't know the area. It, it's a hard, hard hunt. That's why the age class is there. You're on a plateau that you can't glass necessarily. That's why I rely so heavily on cameras in that unit is because you, you don't see those bulls. People get frustrated because they'll make five scouting trips and not see an elk. Um, it, it's it's a tough unit to, to kind of tackle, um, and that's why the age is there. But... Uh, I run cameras on multiple units because I still have my spots I love, right? So (laughs) not all my bulls I post are are all from one area, but a lot of them are. Um, And that's kind of what makes it fun is that age class. Do you um, have guides that guide in several of the other units as well, um, or are you guys primarily just guiding on the boulder? Um. 
No, I, I have three guys that, that run for me, and we pretty much stay on the boulder. Uh, in fact, most of the time we stay in one camp. Um, kind of makes it fun that way. Everyone kind of keeps tabs on where we're going each day and what bulls we're chasing and what bulls we're seeing. Um, a lot of the time, especially during the rut, I, I rarely even carry binoculars because we walk into an area with one specific bull in mind, and typically he's big enough that I can tell without having to glass him up because <laughs> you don't shoot over 100 yards. The elk are, it's tight quarters. Um, but, it, you know, that. I, I've tried expanding and then scaled back. I grew up guiding the Nebo, the Manti. Um, I've done the Dutt in a lot of years, um, which is one of my favorite units. Uh, Boulder age class has been consistent through these hard years, and so I, I've kind of, uh, I don't know, I've painted myself in a quarter, so to speak. Meaning you're, you've got a line on... You kind of know the patterns yeah. of a handful of big bulls, and you hate to just leave it, even though there might be some other units that you would have more fun hunting and guiding Absolutely. in. You feel like you, you've, you've done all the work. You can't leave some of those older age-class bulls. That, that's, my, that's my problem. <laughs> yeah. There's almost, almost every unit I have enjoyed guiding elk more than I have this one. Um, it's the age class and the history I have with a lot of these bulls that is what kind of keeps me there. Yeah. What What do you notice um, these bulls that you're chasing? I know they're all different. I know we've talked about some of them before. Um, but, you know, you've got your areas that you run them. You know, they're velvet. They, they run all summer. Um, we've talked about on the podcast where you like the archery hunt. Uh, you actually like the archery hunt dates from a standpoint of they start uh, in mid-August and you can still target those bulls. Um, at what point in time, you know, from from a calendar standpoint, do you typically notice that most of those bulls make some sort of move? I, I have about two weeks after the velvet strips before the bulls start kind of get antsy and they start doing their pre-rut kind of check now your your five and six year old bulls those 330 340 type bulls come labor day start to get in their head that it's their big chance right those bulls fire up and they start moving cows and and they get out of their routine first and and that's about labor day they're the bulls that kind of they're the ones that start piping off at Labor Day. Those are the ones that get killed by the general public for the most part. Um, my bigger bulls start don't start cruising until usually around the 10th or 15th of September. Um, that's when they kind of get out of their patterns. So for my style of hunting, I enjoy the archery hunt because I still have a pattern on those bulls. Um, <laughs> It's just it's just kind of how I do it. I, I just feel like if I can pattern them, I can ambush kill them. There, there's some kind of uh, routine that I can follow. Once the rut kicks in, I, I'm ground and pound just like everybody else. We're bugling, we're running all day, um, and I'll, I'll go from area to area to area because my bulls migrate. Um, most of their rutting grounds, where I find them on the muzzleloader hunt, end of September, early October, is almost 20 miles from where I'm getting their summer pictures. Um, I have two bulls that travel over 30. Um, 
And so once the rut kicks in, once that kind of magic September 15th, 20th area kind of goes, my bulls are typically 12 to 15 miles from where I was getting them all summer. So that, that's when it gets hard for me. That's when I, I put on lots of miles just like everybody else, whereas if I can kill them during the bow hunt, you know, we're we're hiking into wherever that stand is, and that's the most aggressive part of your day. Does that make sense? And yeah, and most of it is is tree stand up in a tree, getting some elevation, and and sitting in a tree stand, or is is it also ground blind? Yeah, it all depends on each area. I I like the tree stand because I like the thermals up there. If if I, you know, but on this on the same point, like I. A lot of people that hire guides are, are the guys that can afford them. They're, they're a little bit older and don't like to get up in a tree. And so I, I do run blinds just as much as I do tree stands, but if I got a guy who can sit a tree, that's my preference. Okay. So you talk about, you know, when the rut really gets going and towards the muzzleloader hunt, you know, the bulls are just going, you know, your big bulls have really, really moved. My question would be, how many of your bulls after the rut come back to the summer spot, and how many of them have a specific spot that they, you know, quote-unquote winter, and then you'll find them in the summer? I'm, I'm trying to draw a correlation between, you know, do those elk come back to their summer ground and stay there as long as they can unless winter pushes them out? Um, I'm hunting high desert, so I do have bulls in in Ponderosa country that will stay in that country through the summertime. They'll rut there, they'll winter there, they, they don't leave, but it's really few and far between. The majority of my bulls um, have kind of a summer high ground where they're up at 10,000 feet, and then drop down in the low country, which isn't really low. It's 8,000 feet, 77 to 8,700 feet down in the PJs. And so most of my bulls, the, the, the vast majority, migrate a long ways uh, between, I don't know, let's, let's say September, so let's say Labor Day to September 20th, and then back again, you know, about April. I start getting them back on camera early May in their same summer grounds. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, but what I'm saying, though, is you don't necessarily have those bulls that have been in their summer ground, then they leave to go rut, but they come right back after the rut, say, um, end of October, early November. They're right back where you've gotten them all summer. They, They don't come back. I, no, I don't get that. I really don't. Okay. What impact has the late hunt? Um, I know in Arizona the age class has really been depleted. We've had a number of issues, but one of them is we've got a lot of tags on the late hunt. We've had some burns, and it's allowed guys to really be, you know, efficient with killing these bulls, uh, you know, with the, with the big rifles and, you know, the big big optics and all of that. Um what impact does the late elk hunting on some of your giant bulls or big mature bulls um, play? Uh, I'm, on my unit, I, that, that's part of the reason we have a good age class. The late, the late hunt is not that effective. Um, the plateau doesn't allow for a lot of glassing. 
Um, every every couple of years, it seems like the the rut pulls them into an area where guys can get them with the big guns. It, it happens. I won't say it doesn't, but the reason my unit's better than some of these other ones is for that very reason. It has an ineffective late hunt. Whereas units like the San Juan and the Beaver, the reason their age class has dropped so dramatically over the last five years is because of that late hunt. All of your 350s and 360s that made it through the rut that are your next year up-and-comers seem to get hammered on that late season, and it really decimates the age class. And so part of the reason I've worked myself into a corner on the unit I'm on is because of the ineffective late hunt. And the, the reason it's ineffective is it's so thick, the glassing is not real conducive, and it's just not super effective. So in other words, it's so thick that um, they're not killing them on the late hunt. Right. It's thick and it's flat. And, and you know, it, it's just like any southwest desert, the plateau. You, you go from mesa to mesa to mesa. Sometimes those mesas are glassable. Like, sometimes they're there, but it's pretty rare. It, it's, it, it's few and far between. So more often than not, optics are ineffective, long-range guns are ineffective, and, and that's why it's a good unit for age. Um, other than that, uh, you know, and, and San Juan has those areas. Um, even Beaver has those areas, but Beaver still has, as, as you well know, I mean, it's, it's one of the, most rugged units in the state, uh, really high south slopes. And I I don't know what you were doing elevation-wise, but the couple times I've hunted the beaver, we were doing close to 2,000 feet a day. Um, that's the reason why, you know, those elk in November get isolated on those south faces, and, man, they can hammer the herd real quick. Yeah, for sure. Um, Ryan, I want to take a quick second here to thank the sponsors of the podcast. And I want to thank GoHunt.com. Um, my friend Cody Nelson is the optics manager there at GoHunt.com, the gear shop. And if you guys have any binocular needs, any optics, any rifle scopes, tripods, if you want to talk glassing methods, anything, Cody Nelson is a great guy to talk to. Uh, you can reach him at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can also send him an email at optics at GoHunt.com. I also want to thank GoHunt.com Insider and remind you guys, this is obviously application season. Uh, if you go to GoHunt.com forward slash J. Scott, you're going to get a $50 uh, GoHunt Gear Shop gift certificate just for signing up. And that is going to allow you to use those uh, points uh, right there in the gear shop and Go Hunt Insider is the best Western hunting resource out there as far as draw odds, harvest statistics, strategy articles, uh, and what have you. Make sure to check it out. I want to thank them for their sponsorship. I also want to thank Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U dot com, Kuyu dot com, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's the gear that I wear on all my hunts. Uh, make sure to check them out, Kuyu dot com. Uh, also, Canyon Coolers right out of Flagstaff, Arizona. If you use the JSCOT19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, Phonescope.com, if you use the JSCOT19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, and OnXMaps.com, uh, Ryan, I know you use OnXMaps. 
uh, onxmaps.com. If you use the jscott19 uh, promo code at onxmaps.com, you're going to get a 20% discount. Ryan, we had put out on Instagram, you had, we were kind of going back and forth talking about this podcast, and we put out, uh, you know, for the, for the followers, uh, Instagram followers, uh, some questions, and we've got some that have come in. I want to kind of shotgun through some of these. Uh, some of these we can answer quickly. Some of these, you know, may, may be more in-depth, uh, but I think it'd be fun to answer some of these questions uh, uh, so let's uh, let's dive into them. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, a question comes in about the book cliffs. It says book cliffs quality of bulls question mark. Well, the books. Um, you, you know, I got called on on last year. I had a couple guys call me out. Uh, I I I had actually been shed hunting it pretty hard. Found some good bulls. Um, I thought the books were really coming back. Uh, turns out, you know, I, I didn't put two and two together, but a lot of those bulls might have migrated off the Indian reservation. <laughs> and so once I started bantering back with a few of these kids trying to figure out how things looked, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of it's doing very well. Um, I, I have seen a few trail cam picks off some big, big bulls. Um, on the Bitter Creek South area from some Vernal kids. So I know there's still some good bulls on that unit. Um, but for the most part, when when I got kind of picking the brains of these outfitters that are running over there, um, that they're killing what the objective is. And, and if I remember right, uh, Bitter Creek South is managed for a six-year-old bull unit, and the, uh, the roadless side is doing seven, um, seven to eight-year-old bulls. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the bulls coming off that unit are the 330 to 360 class, both sides. Um, so I, I, I think someone might have been putting that in there just to kind of pick my brain a little because, like, I, I got some heat for that, and, I, and rightly so. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know it well enough to say it is what it is, but I can tell you a, a lot of the sheds I pick up off that unit are probably that five- and six-year-old bull class. I pick up a lot of five-points and 320 type six points. Um, so it, it, it's hard to say because I don't run enough time on it, like during the rut, to see what it really is. But from what I got from these outfitters that I really, and this was pretty recent, I picked their brains pretty hard. Um, it sounds like it's gone downhill the last two or three years. Um, I love the book cliffs. I love the terrain. Um, when I was a kid, that's where I grew up elk hunting with my grandpa. I, I, I'm very passionate about the book cliffs. I love them, but I, I think our age class is down. Okay, I've got a question in regards to um, the book cliffs um, that didn't come in, but uh, yesterday at church, uh, a guy that I know, um, he's a little bit older. Um, he can't get around quite as much as he used to. Uh, he's got 18 non-resident points for Utah, and um, he noticed that the book book cliffs had. Uh, one of those one of those units where you can actually put in and, and draw and get uh, any any weapon. So in other words, you could hunt it archery, you could hunt it, you know, early rifle, muzzleloader, late rifle. Um, and I told him that I was a little bit worried about him being able to get around in that unit. And I was thinking that the um, Fish Lake. Um, 
the Fish Lake unit would maybe be a better option as far as being able to get around. I'm just curious your thoughts on, and the interesting thing is the, I'm looking here at the go hunt. Let me look real fast. 18 points. Uh, he could either do Central Mountains Manti, he could do Muzzleloader, and it'd be 100%, uh, or he could do the LaSalle, or he could do uh, the Fish Lake. Um, I was trying to talk him into, with 18 points, being kind of an elderly guy, probably mid, late, mid to late 60s, uh, that Fish Lake. I know you know Fish Lake pretty well. What are your thoughts for that with 18 points for a muzzleloader for a guy that's, you know, just trying to, you know, have a good elk hunt? What, what are his odds on the Monroe? Can you see that? Yeah, the Monroe are... So, the Monroe for muzzleloader, it looks like like 4.8%. So, he's not, he's not in the... No. Um, well, he, they, he would not be in the max. The, the, the Fish Lake's a good unit for, uh, for road hunting, so to speak. Um, you, you don't have to be too aggressive on your boots. Um, so it may not be a bad option for him. Uh, I, I, the first question I ask everybody that asks me about units and points, and I, I ask them what their goal is and what their age is. Like, I, you know, if they're 28 and they're, you know, they put in for multiple states, and I, I try to tell them, hey, make Utah your big bull state. Go for broke, wait right. 10 more years. And an older gentleman like him, and I, I would say, yeah, let, let's cash in and just do the best we can do. Fish Lake. Um, he's going to want to pursue every bull he sees over 330. I mean, I mean right. that's facts. It's not a lot of so big like, bulls come off that unit. But don't you think yeah. he'd be better off, like, you know, he'd be tickled pink with a 330 bull. My point was, uh-huh. rather than go ar- archery when maybe they're not bugling very much and what have you, he could go on a fish lake muzzleloader, probably have them bugling pretty good and, and have a pretty uh-huh. darn good hunt have the time of his life the, the fish lake would be good for that book cliffs wouldn't be bad for that either the the bitter creek south the roaded side of the book cliffs which is the bigger portion of the unit has a lot of oil access there's roads all over the place and when i grew up it, it was my grandpa his brother john and my dad all had tags on that all three of them i, I mean they got around but not a ton i we literally killed almost all those bulls to where we could get a truck to them the, wow. the book cliffs roaded side is not a bad hunt for an old man. And same with the Monroe. The Monroe, you know, in, in my circles, we've always joked, it's the gentleman's hunt. There's a ton yeah. of access on that unit. Um, where, but the tags are really low, especially for non-residents. It seems like uh, Monroe's one of those give out 27 archery tags and maybe three of them go to non-resident type units. So, and, and I don't have the numbers in front of me. That's me shooting from the hip. But it, it's pretty... That one's a tough one to pull. Okay, let's jump to the next question. What are your thoughts on the Manti archery? Best ways to scout and what class of bull should one target? Um, Manti's target bull is a six-year-old bull. Um, Archery, you want to go high. The nice thing about the Manti, most of the roads are on top. That's where Utah's famous Skyline Drive is. The roads are up there at 10,000 feet. And they run the mountaintops and the ridgetops, and so you're looking down. The crappy part about that is 
yeah, you can find the bulls, but you've got to shoot them low and pack them back up to your truck. So <laughs> you've got to be pretty physically fit for that unit. Um, as far as archery goes, I would stock every bull I saw over 330. If he's a good six-point, you stock him. Um, Demantide looks good right now. There was a couple good bulls taken, a couple that they said was over 400. I don't know if they're really that big. I haven't seen them in the books yet. Um, but, I, you know, I, I went in November up to one of my old stomping grounds just to kick around and see if we could see deer because the, the, a lot of the roads were, had been closed for a few years. Saw some nice bucks, picked up some good sheds and glass two bulls in the 360s, um, which means they made it through the late hunt. They're going to be good bulls next year. Uh, Manti can be a good unit, but it's pretty rugged. Okay. Um, thoughts on Panguitch Lake, uh, if it's a sleeper unit or not? Uh, Panguitch is one of my favorite units. Panguitch is on that same belt line with the beaver, the boulder, the San Juan, like just good genes in that, in that belt, right? Um, Panguitch had a really good burn two years ago, or was that three? Uh, might've been three years ago, but, uh, I, I still haven't seen the, the age class coming back. Um, I talked to a couple guys that hunted it late hunt this year. They did not see anything extremely impressive um but that historically that unit's produced some giant giant bulls um i i wouldn't i wouldn't walk away from it if you know if i was sitting in that low point pool to where my my point creeps still 10 10 points plus away i'd be looking at the penguins but i'd be spending some time there first um typically on that unit the most effective hunts are the archery and the late the rut while the rut's fun, it's really hard to find age class on that unit. Um, it can be pretty rugged, but uh, when they're on the south slope, so they're up on the tops, it seems like you can glass them a little bit better. So archery and late hunt's really good for that for that unit. Wasatch or nine mile anthro for DIY early rifle. Uh, every year, I hear about a couple good bulls on the anthro. Um, I don't see them. I don't see them killed. I know the genetics are there. Um, anthro borders a couple CMWs that that beats bulls over 390 every year. Um, so I, I know the genetics are there, but I, I don't see the bulls. Um, I, I would go Wasatch because there's more permits. Um, I, I don't even know how many permits the Wasatch does. I think it's close to 500 um, limited entry elk permits. Um, and, and there's always good bulls. Um, I'm watching one in the winter right now that I think's mid-380s. It's on that unit. He's alive. He will be there through next hunt. I, I think it can be good, but it takes work, a lot of oak brush, a lot of elevation. Um, you're going to work your guts out on that unit. Um, guys saying, I want some knowledge about the Monroe and the Dutton. I... I'm not the guy to ask on the Monroe. Um, I know there's good bulls on the Monroe. I, I know it's got good genes. I do a lot of four-wheeler riding on the Monroe. I don't actually hunt it. So I'm not the guy to go to. Um, Dutton, I love. Uh, it's another unit you're going to work your guts out on. Uh, I put a lot of miles on. Dutton's, like, really famous for its horse country. 
Um, a lot of horsemen love that mountain because there's so limited access that the horsemen can get back in a long ways and do fairly well. Um, one of my favorite units, but at the same time, don't 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 uh, expect a cakewalk. Okay. Uh, question here. Guy saying he's originally from U or from Idaho. What unit in your mind is the coveted Utah tag? <laughs> Fan one, like I, everyone else does. <laughs> <laughs> well, that San Juan's that where all the points are. Um, all, all of our max point holders are still sitting on that San Juan tag. San Juan, as far as elk hunting, is probably one of the pinnacles because it's it's accessible. It's lots of open country. There's a lot of glassing. It's beautiful, um, and it occasionally has age class. Um, I know this year people really struggled with it, but we San Juan had the same drought I did. So it, it's hard for me to say with no boots on the ground how that actually looks. I, I would say the boulder of the San Juan are probably top two, but then again, our biggest bull came off the beaver last year. Uh, you can't discount it. Um, yeah. And it, and it all depends on what your goals are. I mean, if if uh, the most coveted tag might just be the funnest hunt, and and if that's the case, I might tell you Fish Lake. <laughs> you're, right. you're not going to kill trophy class there, but you know we have a huge elk herd on that unit, and it's beautiful. It, 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 one of the biggest uh, living organism aspen groves in the world is on that unit. It's one of our healthiest elk herds, and I mean, if elk hunting is the thing, not inches, by all means, that's our best unit. So. It all depends on what you're what you're looking for in the hunt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy says, Southwest Desert, is it worth 12 points early rifle or put in elsewhere? He must be a resident. Yeah, yeah I would guess so. Um, we don't Southwest, hear much about the Southwest Desert. Well, Southwest, I mean, it, it's tough. It, it's like hunting desert mule deer. You, you might find a canyon with some old old bull that man nobody's hunted i i hear about guys finding these little draws and picking up sheds three or four years off one bull who's been hanging in there his whole life and he's old um that desert produced a 420 last year i don't know if many people know about him um that was one of the biggest bulls to come out of the state um i saw trail cam picks of two other bulls that i think if they weren't for they were really close i don't think they got killed but Southwest Desert is a tough, tough hunt. Um, it's kind of like the boulder. You're going to have to get a lot of cameras out, a lot of boots on the ground, and really cover some country um, to even scratch the surface. Um, some of those bulls, I, I know one of the two that were pushing that 400 mark, the camera was right next to the road. I, I know they're there. It's just it can be tough. So it all depends on how much you want to work. Um, I, I think it's a great unit, and every person that puts in and draws that unit turns around and goes back because they love it so much. Um, I'd, man, and, and t historically, we've killed some giant, giant bulls on that unit. It's, it's borders Nevada. I think that giant bull came from Nevada that got killed this year. It was a Nevada bull killed on the Utah side. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to say, you know, how much you want to work, dude. That's your answer. 
<laughs> have you ever drawn an Arizona early archery bull tag? If so, how many points did it take you, or are you searching for that? Is there a certain unit that you're looking for down there in Arizona? I've never drawn Arizona. I don't have a lot of points in Arizona. In fact, I, I don't, I've got to be around seven or so. I just figure I'm going to pull a late tag one of these years and just go have fun with a gun. But um, I, I, I haven't spent a lot of time or stressed it that much. I, I seem to have my hands tied here. Someone says, how do you kill so many giants and look so good doing it? That has to be one of your buddies. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that's somebody giving me some shit. <laughs> no, but, but it, is a, it is a good question, though. Like, if, if someone were just looking at it on the face value, like, how do you target and chase giants? I mean, from, from a third-party perspective, looking at what you do, my answer would be um, – because I spend my time targeting giant bulls, and that's what we focus on. But what is your answer? No, that that would be the answer. The the reason why we do is because we don't kill the lower age class bulls. Um, I I make sure you know I pull clients that have that expectation. Um, one of my first questions is, how many bulls have you killed? Um, it's the guys that haven't killed a lot of elk that. And typically it's Utah residents that have waited years and years and years for this tag without going out of state. They they can't keep off the trigger of those 350, 360 class bulls. Um, it's my guys that hunt multiple states that have killed lots and lots of bulls that are the guys that are able to hold off and kill the upper age class. Um, so, it, it, but my whole approach is target the age class. I... You call it trophy hunting, call it whatever you want. I feel like a unit like that where guys have waited 20-plus years to pull a tag, let's go for broke. You know, if, if, if you're happy with a 330-type bull, by all means, you can get a good New Mexico tag in three years. You know, Wyoming, I, where are we at? Are we eight or ten years for some of their better yeah. units? I mean, there's no reason to wait 20 years to kill that age class in a state that you can – do really well in so so go for broke and try to try to target trophy bulls that's how you kill them if you're not if that isn't your goal you're not going to kill them right yeah good answer uh okay top three late rifle elk units utah <sighs> again what's your goal <laughs> I mean, let's let's say uh, that your if, goal if, is to kill the biggest bull you can uh, probably Beaver would probably be number one. Um, San Juan, depending on how deep your pockets are, a lot of those bigger bulls winter on some private ground and you can get access. Um, San Juan does have a really effective late hunt and it's still got age class just like the Beaver. Um, for fun, Manti is probably one of your best. Uh, Manti, you can drive and glass and drive and glass and drive, and you'll see a lot of bulls. Um, you're just going to be looking over a lot of younger bulls, looking for something that stands out, um, but a really good late hunt. That, you know, so it it all depends on what you're looking for. But I, you know, that our top age class units, I think, are the San Juan, uh, Boulder, Beaver. 
uh, roadless books, which doesn't have a late hunt. Um, there's one other. I think it's the Deep Creeks, or was. They might have pulled that one off. But th those are the ones with our age class. So of those units, I'd say San Juan and Beaver. But but then if if you're just looking for a good bull, there's some more effective ones. Dutton's really effective on the late hunt. In fact, the, a lot of my bulls on the boulder migrate to the Dutton, just like some of the beaver bulls migrates to the Penguich Lake. Both of those units, Dutton and Penguich Lake, have a really effective late hunt. So you can capitalize on some of the age class of the other units on those ones if you're paying attention and you've spent some time down on those units in November. might give you an idea of where to start. Someone says here, uh, can there ever be a change to the point system? Will our kids ever be able to draw? What are your thoughts? I, Kyle, I read that, and it, that's kind of, it's heartbreaking to think about, right? Um, as residents, yes, they have a chance. Um, it, it, it's there. Right? You know, most people draw before 20 points as residents. There's more tags available. As non-residents, I, I don't see how anyone under the point creep, which if my math is right, around 12, if, if you don't have 12 points now, you will never statistically be in that max point pool for one of the tags. And so it really hurts you. It, and, yeah, it, for the kids and the younger guys really getting into the sport, that's what's killing us non-resident-wise. Um, it's really deterring people from putting in for Utah. Um, I listened to uh, Corey Jacobson. Uh, oh, what's his elk 101? They kind of went through a state-by-state -state breakdown of ways you can hunt elk every year. Utah is like the worst state on their list. Like it, it's your last priority of putting in as a non-resident is Utah because it's so like limited on non-resident access. Let me play the devil's advocate on that for just a second and, and just curious where this conversation might go. Uh, let's say that Utah did not have the structure that they have, and let's say that every year you could go get over-the-counter tags and pretty much everyone, everyone could come hunt Utah. Is there a chance that Ryan Carter might not be as passionate about what he does because there's not many giant bulls around and you're harvesting two- and three-year-old bulls? Uh, is there something to be said? And this is just a, a general question, and this we could probably go on for about six hours on this. But, you know, I understand what people say when they want to have opportunity for the youth and people that don't hunt and what have you, but I think almost having these states, Arizona, Utah, some of these states where it's hard to get tags, um, it creates better antlers, it creates more age class, and in essence it creates a situation where you've got a guy like Ryan Carter who is, you know, head over heels over mature, big, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old bulls, and it, it's, it's awesome. I'm not so sure, Ryan, that you would be as enthusiastic about what you do and have the passion if there were only 2- and 3-year-old elk running around the woods. It wouldn't be fun. It would almost be, in essence, like if you were fishing and all you caught were 6- or 8-inch trout, 
uh, or you've got rivers and such where you've got, uh, you know, catch release and, and such where you've got 18 to 24 inch brown trout that, that are, you know, big giant fish that people are passionate about catching. I'm curious your thoughts on this. And this guy is not, you know, I'm, I'm taking an extreme here, but, um, I think some of these states that, that do restrict uh, licenses and create mature animals, uh, I think is almost better for what we do. Curious your thoughts. Well, I, I think you're right on. I mean, it's the reason I don't mule deer hunt, right? Utah doesn't, they, they give out so many general season mule deer tags that are age class isn't there. It's not exciting for me. I, I, I like hunting mule deer. I wouldn't say I'm crazy about it, but I don't get excited because I, I've killed enough 20-inch deer in my life that I, it's hard for me to want to spend a lot of, invest a lot of a time chasing them because I keep killing the same age class, right? And, and maybe if I wasn't so passionate about elk, maybe I'd spend more time and do better, but I don't get the passion because the the way they've managed our deer has been pretty piss poor in my opinion. Whereas, you know, if I lived in Colorado, things might be different. A resident in Colorado can do fairly well with a little bit of hard work because they've managed their deer a lot better. I, I don't know. Uh, Utah's had its day of open bulls. So, you know, there was a time when the, the Dutton, the, the Boulder, um, these were over-the-counter, like you could hunt them every year tags. Um, they, they did okay, not great. Um, I remember, you know, they shifted them and made these Air 301 tags. They were archery only, uh, no preference point type hunts. You could draw almost every single year, and there was no penalty. Man, I saw some giant bulls die on the Dutton, like by the same guys, multiple years running. Um, but I, I still think I enjoy the way it's structured. I, I think there needs to be some kind of change in, in the, uh, tag allocation, but that's why it's important to have units like the Wasatch versus the Boulder with, with, you know, the Wasatch, I, I don't even know the non-resident tags, but typically it's a 10%. So if there's 500 resident tags, there's at least 50 going to non-residents, and that's cycling through 50 guys that are going to come on and be happy with a 350-type bull, 340, 330. That, that's where the Wasatch is sitting, which is great. Um, and so that's why I always ask guys the, their first question, like, what's your goal? You want to have a good hunt, or are you looking for inches? Because um, sometimes the, it, it's funner just to go have fun and shoot a really nice bull and spend some time with your family um, it's worth 10 years of putting in, and you walk away with a great memory. It, it, inches aren't always the most important part. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know the right answer to that. And and I, I think it's fair to play the devil's advocate. I think our, our state needs to look at that. We've got to find some way to make sure that these kids that are at 14 years old getting passionate about the sport have some kind of opportunity when they're 35 to be able to harvest some of these bulls because as it is right now statistically as a non-resident it's near impossible that's frustrating yeah uh i want to ask you about uh 
I, I didn't uh, go to the auctions at the Western Hunting Expo. Uh, the, the conservation tags and some of the unit-wide tags and what have you in Utah at, compared to other years, uh, the prices of these tags, are they up, down, are they the same? You know, uh, did, you know, have the, have the conservation tags been going sky high this year? Where are we at in that? Um, most of the tags seemed a little down to me. Um, there was a couple elk tags that went high. The, the San Juan was a little high. Um, Boulder sat par. Um, the, the rest of them were low. The, the, the Pavant, the, let's see, what did we do? It was San Juan, there was a beaver. All of them kind of went lower than normal. Um, we bought the statewide tag. Seems like we were 40000 lower than it normally goes for. Um, the only, as far as elk goes, the only one that went up was the San Juan that I saw. Um, and there might be some couple of sleeper bulls that, that, uh, Adam Bronson's sitting on out there. I don't know, you know, uh, but the, those tags were up. Deer, um, deer for the most part were par. Um, God, it seemed like our Antelope Island and our statewide went a little high. Um, some of our premier units, like the Henrys, are really struggling. Um, so I, I can't see anything going crazy, even in a strong economy, as far as deer go. But, you know, our, we've got some really good deer units that seem to be doing well. The Ponsagant looks good. The Oak Creeks have been tipping over some giant, giant deer. Like, even our PAR units, the Vernon, had two or three die that were really nice. So, as far as tags go, I, I think it was low. Uh, on average, but there was a couple that went over. Okay. Ryan, it's uh, been great having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you spending time, uh, you know, with us and and uh, giving us some knowledge. I want to give you a chance to let listeners know how they can reach out to you, how they can follow, uh, and if you had any final thoughts or concluding thoughts, uh, feel free to, to do so. Uh, but it's always, uh, sorry I missed you at the expo, but it's always great. I love following your Instagram account. Um, love seeing the pictures and what have you, and it's going to be another great season. So uh, we're all excited, and, um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks, Jay. Um, uh, yeah, my Instagram's probably the best best way. You know, I have a Facebook page, DC Outfitters, and a Twitter and a bunch of other ones, but the one that probably has the most, like, uh, traffic is Instagram, Ryan DC Outfitters. Um, and, you know, if you like trail cam pics, you're going to like it. If you don't, uh, <laughs> you might get mad at my white smile or my flat brim hats. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it should should be a really good year. I, I had high hopes for last year and things flipped on its head, but I, I'm really feeling good about this year. saw lots of acorns last fall, which I didn't see the year before. Acorns typically for Utah – mean fat bulls and so i think our bulls suffered this winter pretty well we're gonna have lots of water and i'm really excited for 2019 but we'll just see how it goes should be a lot of fun either way right on buddy well god bless thanks for spending time with us uh and uh, good luck i'll be uh, following uh, all summer hopefully watching some of these big velvet bulls as you watch them along and and uh, always cheering you on uh, next season as well Sweet. Thanks so much, Jay. I always enjoy talking with you. All right, buddy. Take care. <laughs> Bye.